Our next guest has been writing about the goings-on inside and outside the walls of Toronto's City Hall since the spring of 2012. Although Toronto is the hub of the Canadian economy, few people cover what goes on inside the political halls of power like our next guest. Today he covers Toronto municipal politics for the CBC while also publishing the City Hall Watcher newsletter. Please welcome to the show Matt Elliott. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thanks uh, for Greg for coming in and uh, sharing the, the hosting duties. Yeah. It'll be fun. So on the way to work. I usually take the TTC, as Greg can attest, but today I drove in, and as I dro- as I drive in, I'm listening. I've already listened to Metro Morning mm-hmm. as I'm waking up, so I'm listening to a podcast. Yep. And uh, Greg knows that Pitchers and Catchers recently reported mm-hmm. the spring training, so I thought, what better time to listen to um, to Birds All Day podcast than today? Mm-hmm. And as I'm listening to it, your name comes up <laughs> as a supporter of that podcast. Yeah. And I had to do a double take. I said, wait a second. I'm meeting Matt today, and his his name shows up on this random baseball podcast. Yeah, like cosmic coincidence. Right? I think so. Yeah. So do you do you have hope for the for the uh, for the Jays this year? Like hope to find hope. Like hope in terms of winning lots of baseball games. <laughs> or Pro- <fun. laughs> no, um, probably not. Uh, hope in terms of you know interesting stuff happening. Like I'm very interested in like this Vlad Guerrero Jr. guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Projections say he's going to be like a world beater, hitting like thousands of home runs and you know Hall of Famer and all this stuff. And I like to like get all hyped about stuff like that. I'm the kind of sports fan where I like to like really buy into things and be disappointed. Some sports fans like, <laughs> like, start with cynicism, like they're always going to lose. Nothing good is ever going to happen. Because then again, I guess it's easier. But for me, I like to. <laughs> Sort of go all in and get my heart broken, and sometimes, occasionally, it works out. That's like my son. He'll yeah. root against all Toronto teams, and when they win, he goes, "Yeah, yeah." Again, <laughs> it's like a defense mechanism. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think so. Sometimes you have to have that missing in Toronto. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then they tease you with semi-good teams. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that Toronto is just a city that's been burned so many times, right? <laughs> Especially people who are hockey fans, and I mean, I, I'm not. A bandwagon hockey fan I get on during the playoffs I don't really pay a lot of attention normally but Leafs fans have been uh, disappointed for mm-hmm. way longer than I've been alive so I get the general yeah. cynicism around sports in the city for sure Strowman a lot of people are kind of yeah, a bit of... upset about Strowman yeah. he's always upset, been a guy upset of being outspoken upset of the situation well, I think Toronto doesn't like their sports heroes or athletes to be outspoken yeah i would agree with I that think that's a toronto thing and I, I don't i don't you know to me it's like, like it when athletes are honest or as honest as they can be and speak like real people you know nothing worse than an athlete interview where they just do this where you know we put our heart on the line out there and you know the coach is really good and it's all about a team and blah 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 like it's nice to hear somebody, one day at a time yeah actually 20 percent about <laughs> yeah. something um, he's definitely, I mean, going against ownership a little bit is, uh, you know, never a wise move for an athlete. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's between the athlete and the, the team for me as a fan. I think it's interesting. And I, yeah. I, I like Strum and I like that he's out there and he's talking straight and all that stuff. Yeah. Agreed. I've always liked those guys. George Bell, when he told uh, Jimmy one M. Williams that he would outlast him as a J. Yeah. Um, Bautista doing the bad flip. And yeah, absolutely. Couldn't care less what other people thought. Personality, right? Yeah. Like let's let's yeah. let's see more yeah. of that. 
Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I'm not a hockey fan, but there's this thing with the, what, the Carolina team where they do the celebration after the game. Yes. Some of these old school hockey guys are just like, it's an affront to everything hockey stands oh for. They need to be professional, and it's like they're having fun. Yeah, the game's over. They're a bunch of 20 year old kids for a lot of them, and you know, they won a game and they're going out and they're doing something nice for the fans. Like, they're Carolina. Yeah. You need to sell hockey. Now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, not, itself. it's not an obvious thing. Um,. But awesome. So looking forward to the Jays. Yeah, always looking forward to the Jays. I, you know, my favorite time of year to watch the Jays is like when it's like June, July. You start having those nice days. The dome opens yep. up, and I can I can walk to the stadium. So I'll walk down, and we'll sit on five hundred level and have a beer. And uh, it doesn't even matter if they win or lose at that point. Like it's just a nice just a thing nice to do. day. Yeah. yeah. Now. Did you grow up in Halifax? Is that home for you? No, uh, Oakville is originally home Oakville for me. Oakville is home oh, for Oakville. you. So just down the QEW there. So you went out east to get away from it all. Yeah, I kind of, my parents sort of politely suggested it would be a good idea for me to get far enough away from home that I would have to learn how to do laundry and stuff like that. <laughs> I was one of those high school students that, uh, you know, really did not have a lot of, didn't learn a lot of life skills as far as cooking or cleaning <laughs> or anything. So... Uh, by getting me, I think even if I had gone to like Ottawa or something, I still would have found a way to like come home and get laundry. Get done. Yeah, just, so, uh, no, far Sunday enough dinners. Yeah, uh, Halifax was like, okay, totally impossible. <laughs> I gotta learn to use this washing machine. And uh, so that worked out pretty well. For How's me. the case? The battle, the battle has been won? Battle has been won, yeah. I can, I can do my own laundry now. That was a big step. Uh, Halifax is a beautiful city, too. So oh, I, yeah. I knew nothing about it really going out there. Like it was almost a random choice. For me, uh, people said the journalism program was really good, uh, but I went out there and just immediately fell in love with it. It's perfect size, lots of bars, lots of beer, like everything I wanted in university. <laughs> How did you know? So you went there for journalism. Yeah. How did you know that's what you wanted to do? Uh, I didn't. I knew I always liked writing. Okay. So writing was always my thing, and I was always sort of a very online kind of person. So I had blogs over the years about things. So I wrote about you know Nintendo for a while, and um, then I did a co-op placement at a newspaper in Oakville. Yeah. Called Oakville Today no longer exists, but uh, it was a paper there. So I did that, and then I wrote about all kinds of things, sort of whatever they needed me to do. And uh, you know, it was never so much the journalism. For me, like the act of reporting, it was the writing. I just I enjoy, writing. enjoy writing. I like the challenge of, okay, I have a blank sheet of paper in front of me. How can I create something out of this and tell a story? Uh, so that, to me, has always been the draw. Some of the other parts of journalism, like I actually went to journalism school um, and sort of early on into this four-year program, I realized wasn't really digging it. And the parts that I was not digging were the reporting parts, so like mm. being a reporter. So going out and collecting interviews and sort of writing uh, a, a piece where you say, okay, here's what one person says on one side, here's what one person says on the other side. Yeah. Like sort yeah. of that basic beat reporting stuff. Incredibly important. I don't mean to diminish it at all because there's great reporters out there and that's the fundamental building block of everything I do, but just could not see myself doing that. wasn't getting enough out of it. So, you know, I got away from journalism for a number of years, actually, and then I was pulled back in to it through Toronto City Hall, Rob Ford got elected, which, uh, you know, your listeners probably know was a, a colorful character. Um, he gave jobs made. to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different kinds of jobs. Different kinds of jobs. Different yeah. kinds of jobs. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, that threw me back into it. And then even then it was, you know, I knew I couldn't be a reporter, but I thought there might be a, a role for somebody who really digs into some of the policy stuff. Mm. Somebody does analysis, somebody who has an opinion and presents it in a way, um, that kind of 
So never got all the way back to reporting, but got back into writing, and that's what really got me into oh. the whole journalism thing in the first place. So it, it kind of came around. Full again. circle. Yeah. You never thought of like fiction writing or anything like that. It was, it was more you wanted to write about what was happening. Yeah, I, I thought about fiction writing, and I mean, I have some drafts folders on my okay. computer from sure, over the sure. years, some national novel writing month stuff and this kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, no, fiction would be something that, uh, you know, I'd be interested in and maybe coming back to. But, you know, one of the reasons why I got away from journalism is I thought there's no money in this. And mm. turns out that was true. There that was true. There really is not any <laughs> whole lot of money in it. But uh, if you're listing things that where there's less money than journalism, fiction writing is probably would be there as well. one of them Fair way nice. up there. So I'd uh, love to get back into it. It's one of those things where you need to find the time to pursue a passion like that and yeah. not have it like, you're not counting on it to bring home the money and pay the bills and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I want to get to uh, writing about uh, Rob Ford. Sure. But you talked about uh, how you were, you were with uh, Oakville today and that's no longer around. Yeah. And uh, I think that is a, that's an issue, isn't it? In local news reporting, local journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, it, can't, it can't be a good thing, I don't think. No. Um, but let, let's talk a bit about that. Like a lot of people don't, would not see the, the, the obvious, but so why is losing things like Oakville today yeah. not a good thing? Uh, it's, I mean, local news is sort of the, the foundational stuff and I'm a big believer in municipal government as the most important kind of yeah. government. Yeah. Uh, even though, you know, if you look at what gets the most attention, it tends to be the federal stuff and the provincial stuff, mm-hmm. uh, municipal stuff is way down the list for a lot of people. But to me, it's, you know, it's as simple as when I walk outside, you know, this office here, I look around, it's what level of government am I actually seeing and experiencing on the street, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you walk outside, you see the sidewalks, they're not totally plowed, you go and the uh, streetlights are turning after a certain amount of delay, Um, you know, the streetcar is running only ever so often, it's full, Um, the lights are broken or working, some of them are, some of them aren't, like that kind of thing. All of that is political. Political decisions are behind every single one of those things, mm-hmm. uh, and it's all municipal. So for me, uh, you know, having people who are there and watching and reading uh, about what's behind those political decisions is incredibly important and more important. Uh, you know, it's not getting uh, less important uh, as time goes on. It's the same level important or more important, especially yeah. as more stuff has been downloaded to the cities from other levels of government. So. Uh, Incredibly important. Uh, we're lucky in Toronto that we still have a, a, a fair amount of coverage of local stuff. Uh, really worries me when you move outside Toronto and you look at a place like Oakville or a place like Vaughan or Markham or Oshawa or all these cities around Toronto and then further out and further out um, because, you know, there's, there's stuff going on there. There's scandal going on there. There's uh, corruption going on there. And a lot, in a lot of cases, those politicians benefit from there just not being there's people no at meetings and... Is there, is there, is there, do you see a solution to this? Is there like, you could go to, you know, independent bloggers and and journalists, right? um, but there is something to a collaborative effort that a local newspaper has that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think like, you know, there's, there might be some stopgap stuff, you know, things like I'm doing with a newsletter here in Toronto, you know, somebody could conceivably do that for a municipal council in a town or a city and get a certain number of readers and that would be a valuable service um but yeah you're right at the same time like the back in the day is when there were newsrooms <laughs> focused on this stuff mm, yeah. you had five or six or way more than that people yeah. you know covering a town council uh that was incredibly important um so you know the, how do we get back to that I and mean, that's a big debate that's going yeah. on across all the journalism right now and i think 
Canadian government has talked about subsidies for journalism. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the obvious plus to that would be maybe some more that newsrooms could survive. The downside to that is now you have journalists who are beholden to you get yeah, the yeah, that they're receiving, or you get the Godfrey's of the world asking for the money. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's the other problem is that you know maybe what that would do is just sort of keep alive uh, the dinosaurs, you know, like the and prevent some of the new stuff that will rise up from rising up. So, you know, there's that sort of question mm-hmm. as to whether, uh, you know, that's one thing that I think is worth at least looking at and spinning around and saying, okay, what can this do? Uh, you know, some of the stuff like tax breaks for subscriptions and things like that would be less in like the government being directly involved and more just encouraging people to subscribe and pay. In general. Yeah. yeah. It, was it? I was listening to Canada Commons and they did this whole series on corruption. Right. And I'm trying yeah, to think. Was it, was it the town of Caledon? Like, yes. What town was it? The mayor? They were trying to kick the mayor yeah, out. Yeah, the one that opens with like the the mayor's husband like getting attacked in the driveway. Yeah. 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 Is that Caledon? That was Caledon. Yeah. That's nuts. That was. It was it's a two parter episode. And just yeah. Unbelievably good. Like one of those things that made me sort of rethink politics in certain ways because you know I thought like that's that kind of stuff. Or no, like, I that's know. Like old school. It's so. like you're thinking of a TV show. Like, yeah, like that's The Sopranos. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And, but no, straight up. So yeah, like that sort of stuff going on, and you think, okay, that stuff is known. That stuff was reported. But what are the stories that haven't been reported? Mm-hmm. Like what is going on that nobody knows about? That's so true. And 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 I don't know if there's an obvious answer, Greg, to your question on, on how do you get local news coverage. Yeah. Um, you know, if Oakville today couldn't see a financial way out um then then you know and, and they're the ones that are running the the joint yeah well i mean um, for so long the like a paper like that was just funded by classified ads the classified section of the local paper was huge yeah. revenue because somebody would call up and they talk to somebody and say i want to place an ad because i have an apartment to rent and they would pay their sure. 75 bucks or whatever for the ad to run and then you look at how many of those they would run in an average newspaper like that was that was huge business and yeah craigslist came along and yep. craigslist uh killed it so yeah you know, say vie. Now, how did you, you know, you you were you were doing tech at some company, yeah. right? How did you get back at the Metro, being the guy who covers City Hall? Uh, well, I like I said, I Rob Ford was elected, and yeah. I was kind of fascinated by this. I had been in Toronto living for a few years. Uh, my partner Aaron and I, we had just bought a house. Like we were sort of settling down, so I was getting more interested in the politics of the city and the Rob Ford election. Uh, you know, for me. There was a very odd election, and you know we've seen more of them afterwards, so it feels less unique now. But yeah. <laughs> at the time, it was like, how is this guy winning? Like, you know, he's yeah. not. Cause it's not about. It's not an election about policy. It's not an election no. where you know facts seem to particularly matter, no. and that really worried me because you know there were times when I'd watch my all debate, and then I'd immediately go online afterwards, and I was like, so what's the what what's the reality? Like, what's you know, he keeps talking about TPC wasting money, but it's like, okay, what's the TPC budget actually look like? Like, I became very, very fascinated by this stuff. So then Rob Ford won, and I have this thing where I get kind of, uh, you know, very into certain topics and spend a lot of time reading them, uh, reading about them. And I keep having to remind myself, like, if you're going to spend all this time online, like, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and reading stuff, like, you should at least, like, try to leave some trail, like, mm. create something with that. So uh, after I realized I was spending a lot of my time on municipal politics in Toronto and reading about Rob Ford, I thought, I'm going to start a blog. 
and this oh. was like the tail end of, of blogging as the sort of the golden era of blogging. Sure, golden era. But um, you know, so I started the blog, and the blog initially I thought it would just be like, okay, here's some an article I like reading about Rob Ford or City Hall, uh, an insight I liked. It would be more, you know short posts, just stuff that I thought would be cool to leave out there, and maybe other people would find it interesting as well. Then I started realizing that there was things that I was interested in that nobody else had written about that I had to like dig into budget documents to find. Mm. So I started doing that, and then that led to longer and longer pieces on the blog. Did the blog for just over a year, from uh, 2011 to early 2012, and other people seemed to find it. I started noticing in my like Google Analytics that there were like IP addresses from City Hall, so like city staffers were reading oh, wow. it, uh, which was a, a nice thing to see. So <laughs> there started being some uh, you know back and forth there. People emailing me to tell, tell me about stuff, and uh, you know, and then sort of just out of the blue, after about a year, uh, somebody from the Metro newspaper uh, got in touch with me and said, "Hey, we're launching a new website. We want to have some." online content, uh, would you be interested in doing what you're doing independently uh, for us? And, you know, that for me, that was like, okay, I'm already doing this for zero dollars. They are offering me more than zero dollars. Uh, yeah, I'm into that. Uh, and especially because, you know, at that point, I wasn't really sure I wanted to get back into journalism. I, you know, I just knew I liked this project. I thought it was useful and worthwhile to do in my spare time while I was still working full time in tech. So, uh, you know, the opportunity to sort of keep doing that, but doing that, you know, getting paid to do it in front of a bigger audience was, was nice. So, yeah, started with there and then evolved for six years to the various things and I ended up in Frank Weekly and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's good to be nice. And I remember you talking about, I remember the big one was Rob, Rob and Doug would tout they've saved a billion yeah. dollars. Um, and you were one of the, I think you were the guy that said, okay, let's, let's get all these numbers yeah. and figure it out. Okay. Yeah. You've saved this much. Right. Um, uh, you're not collecting this much, but you're adding it as a save. There was a whole, yeah. whole process there that you uncovered. Yeah. Well, that was one of those things. And that's still today. Like the, those sorts of claims that politicians make are like the thing that I immediately like just focus on, you know, yeah. like it'd be like a one line in a speech where they cite a specific number or make a specific claim. And I immediately go like, is that true? Um, and you know, with the billion dollar thing, yeah. Rob and Doug Ford got on the radio. They had a radio show every Sunday oh at the God, time. Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird time for all of us. Um, <laughs> and they were talking about having saved a billion dollars. And my first thought was, you know, I know the city budget at the time was, you know, around 11 billion dollars a year. And it had always, in my time of covering it, been around $11 billion a year, going up, you know, a little bit every year as, you know, stuff gets added. Uh, but there had been no point that I could remember where the budget was like $11 billion one year and then $10 billion the next year, which, yeah. you know, would be the logical assumption if they saved a billion dollars. It yeah. would show up somewhere. So I started sending emails to various people saying, you know, is there some justification for this? Like, what's the math on it? And I realized that they had nothing. Um, so, you know, it got, it just kept sort of snowballing, though, because they kept saying it, even though I kept sort of saying this isn't true and writing things about it. And then, you know, they were got to the point where they're going to city staff and saying, hey, hey, we want to be able to say we saved a billion dollars. Can you, like, come up with a way for wow. us to justify, justify sure. that claim? And, you know, and then it became a bigger story because Rob Ford had the, the crack scandal, the crack video, all of that stuff that Robin Doolittle did a great job of uncovering mm -hmm. uh, wrote about in a, a book later on which is very much worth reading um, but you know 
after the crack stuff broke, it was very much, you would say, okay, you know, like I'm not perfect, but I saved a billion dollars. So it became part of that story as well. So, you know, me me doing the work, and Daniel Dale did some great work on this Mm -hmm. too at the start. Um, Me doing this work really, I think, was useful for people because it helped to sort of undermine that narrative. Like, they really tried to go hard on the, like, yeah, he he smoked crack a a couple times on video, but uh, he saved a billion dollars. How can you put a price on that? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so when the US media got involved, there were some nice moments. MSNBC cited my billion dollar research on their network, which was sort of mind blowing to yeah. see like a US net cable network throw up like a screenshot of my writing. And I was like, what? Like, I never thought I would get to that point. <laughs> but uh, you could say that about a lot of things during Fair the Rockport era. Yeah. So does Daniel Dale now owe you money? Like, he's now the fact checking guru. Right? <laughs> right. Not, he's, not, made, he's made a career now in Washington. Not fact checking no, trope. No, no. Daniel Dale or a is beer. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I take a beer. Sure. <laughs> um, no, Daniel's great. And I, I, it's so cool to see him down in Washington. Like, doing he's, getting, he's getting so much respect down there right now. So much respect. He, he's, on, he's on TV. Yeah. He's and everywhere. I love it because it's like, you know, this is what you need, like a, a Canadian guy to, to get up there. Who was it that do? said that last, wasn't yeah. it just in the last day or so? Some, I can't remember who it was, yeah. an American journalist said this is the shining example of holding our government yeah. to account right. and he's Canadian yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly like you have to bring somebody in yeah. from outside yeah to, just, to bring it outside it's like yeah. it's the basic stuff it's like it's the president saying things that are true and you know it's it's weird to me because I think what politicians have learned over the last few years is that you just repeat a lie enough the press will stop calling you on it and the public will stop sort of understanding that it's not true and they'll start believing it. So it does require somebody like Daniel Dale to just be mm-hmm. like adamantly checking and checking and checking and checking. And I don't know how he does it. Like he does it because like there's, you know, hundreds of, of lies he's checking every single day. Yeah, every time he tweets. Or every time speech. he tweets. And, you know, there, I think there would be a burnout factor for me at some point. So, you know, kudos to him. for. You might not going. recognize him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when he comes back to Toronto. He's like a giant old man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? So it's, so it's very interesting, you know, so starting with you on, you know, no, we're not, you didn't save a billion dollars. Here's actually, you know, the numbers. You might have saved this amount of money, right. but... Um, you know, and, and what, what Daniel is doing down down in the U.S. for for the Toronto Star and, and the Trump fact checker mm-hmm. um, has has journalism changed because he, even what Daniel's doing is seen as not normal, right? Right, because you'll a lot of news coverage will be so and so said this yeah. rather than. Yeah. A story around why that is or is not actual fact, actually factual, or things like that. So I'm curious how you've seen journalism change for the good, for the better. I think it's it's one of the side effects of there just being fewer reporters and fewer journalists in newsrooms is that uh, they have to cut back and focus on the basics. So for them, like the basics of journalism are. Like, okay, John Tory or Donald Trump or Doug Ford or whoever is giving a press conference today. We're a newspaper. We need to have somebody there. We need to report what was said at the news press conference. Mm-hmm. We need to get some reaction from somebody on the other side. So if Doug Ford's announcing that he has this great new thing, we need somebody who kind of is like skeptical about that thing just to sort of balance things out. Yeah. And that's your basic story about what happened that day. And that's an important story. But when you don't have, when you're sort of sending all your reporters to do that work, you don't have anybody left to do some of the work 
that is, uh, you know, more detailed than that. The background. The background, the research, the fact-checking, all of the stuff that, you know, used to happen because you wouldn't have so many people around that, you know, some people were just looking for different angles of stories to cover. Mm -hmm. So it was not always just the most direct, here's what happened angle. So I think that's the, the thing that has changed the most is, you know, you just have, you don't have enough deep bodies. You have people who are covering the who said what, but you don't have the the why, the you know, what does it mean, like the follow-up questions that come out when somebody makes an announcement. Yeah. And that's where I like to live with my stuff is less, you know, what what was in it, you know, stuff gets announced all the time and that's good to know. But for me it's to dig into the policy and say, okay, the government has decided this is the way that they're going to approach housing or transit. Like is there other alternatives? What does it actually mean? What does it cost? Like what does the long term look like? How's it actually gonna affect riders or, or people who live in houses or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know. Ultimately, like what's the outcome? So that kind of uh, analysis work is, is incredibly important. But again, it's just not a lot of people who have the time to, to focus on it anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm- Keen, and maybe this is jumping a little too far ahead, but I'm going to do it just because I want to talk about the personalities between Doug Ford and and how has that changed? Because now you're, you know, critiquing and following and, and checking yeah. into Tory. Like, right. has, has it, maybe it hasn't changed. Maybe it hasn't changed. Huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, it definitely changed a lot. You know, I went from covering Rob Ford for the first four years. I did this to covering uh, John Tory for the next four years. And it was very different, obviously. Um, I liked it in the sense that, you know, you didn't always need to feel like, you know, pull up Twitter constantly, like, what's happened? Like, you know, how has everything changed? Like, there were times when Rob Ford was in office where I'd, like, have something written and something would happen and be like, okay, delete that. Like, yeah. that's, I can't do anything with this because everything's changed in the, you know, hour, two hours it took me to finish it off. So, you know, it became a more deliberate, more thoughtful, which was good. I like that. Um, some reporters, you know, they find it boring. But for me, I, you know, I like to, to be able to, to sit down and think about policy a little bit more. Um, and then there's also just, you know, you don't, like, John Tory does not, like, you know, all politicians have their ways with words and their messaging and their spin on things. But, you know, John Tory is not a guy who just goes outright and lies about stuff, uh, mm-hmm. generally, you know, he will have his opinion and I'll, I'll disagree with it often. And, you know, we have our, our policy differences and all that stuff, but there is not a cases where I have to sort of say, okay, John Tory, like, you just made that up entirely. John Tory will sit down and read the reports, the same reports that I read. Um, that is like the thing I give him the most credit for because it's actually rare for politicians mm-hmm. to sit down and read their reports. A lot of politicians work where they have staff read them, and then they just sort of go off what their staff are saying. Like John Tory, notes, yeah. Yeah. John Tory is the kind of guy who will like get up at 5 a.m. and go to the office and just read over mm-hmm. all the stuff that he could look at the day, that day. So, you know, that to me, I like that because we can sort of have that kind of policy discussion. Um, so that's the, the big difference. I think it's a little bit more slow and it's more rooted in facts than uh, it was. And Doug Ford is, is very much like Rob Ford was. Like, there's not a huge difference between their approaches to government. How do you know that um, that John Tory reads notes uh, and briefs? Uh, I mean, we've talked. I've talked to John Tory. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then there's just, you know, you can tell based on, you know, if you watch him at a, a meeting where he's talking to staff, asking them questions or whatever, like, it's not like some counselors you can tell if they're just sort of driven in and thought about things yeah. you know questions to ask that are clearly already answered in the report whereas Tory's questions are more specific and pointed and about things that he's noticed in in these reports so it's just a, a different approach mm, interesting and you can yeah okay um 
I wanted to ask you about, you've, you've got your newsletter. Yep. What's your, the name of your newsletter again? City Hall Watcher. City Hall Watcher. Um, comes out weekly. Comes out every Monday. Comes yep. out every Monday. Um, got some great stuff in it. I, I just uh, started subscribing to that. Um, you wrote one. I, I want to talk about a bunch of things. Okay. Um, let's talk about let's talk about housing. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I found, um, I found a bunch of points very very interesting, and I want to dive into some of these. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about how policy when it comes to housing and, and, and things that are related to that, are based around single-family homes, yep. single-family houses. Um, however, there are way more people that actually live mm-hmm. um, in apartment buildings and rent. Right. Um, let's dive in, because that, that's not just a fact that is, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, there's actually meaning and relevance behind that. So I'm wondering if you can touch on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it is, Toronto is increasingly becoming a city of renters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and not a lot of that is affordability. Like there's a lot of people I know that are of my generation who have just sort of realized like that I'm never going to own a place in Toronto. Like renting is, is all, you know, not because they're necessarily happy doing that, but the prices of housing has just gotten so nuts that, you know, where do you go with it? Um, and then from a policy point of view, though, if you talk to city councilors, you know, I think all politicians have this idea of who like their voter is, like what does my mm. sort of average voter look like? And for local politicians, it is somebody who owns a house. And you know, when you get out to the suburbs, it's somebody who owns a detached single family home. Um, so because they have this idea, a lot of the policy uh, they support or will support revolves around these people. So, you know, it's a single family homeowner, maybe two cars, you know, a couple of kids. Um, whereas that is not an accurate reflection of the demographics of the city and definitely not a uh, reflection of the demographics of the city, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, sure. like where we're going. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a huge disconnect and one that's it's hard to solve. I think it will eventually be solved. But one of the, the big problems is just, you know, those politicians are not entirely wrong when it comes to who actually comes out to vote in municipal mm. elections. Uh, that still tends to be the older crowd, the owners rather than the renters, uh, and all that kind of thing. So that's something that, you know, I, I do all I can to encourage people to vote, but, it, you know, it, it needs to be more of a widespread effort by, by renters to, to get together and, you know, advocacy and, you know, make stuff happen. What sort of policies, like what sort of, obvious policy changes or, or, or policy discussions um, would you say would then reflect that, right? So, you know, if somebody who owns a property is yeah. concerned about, I'll use a, just a, a weird example, um, shoveling the sidewalk. Right. People in apartment buildings couldn't care less because they're not on the sidewalk. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one example. I'm, I'm curious, is, is there an example if that was flipped, if policy was made around apartment building dwellers? Yeah. Uh, versus uh, single homeowners. Yeah, especially when you talk about apartment buildings, you're generally talking about taller buildings, and the amount of regulations that are around that, the amount of enforcement. Uh, elevators in this city are a huge issue that affect you know thousands and thousands of people that don't doesn't get a ton of play, uh, but really affects people because the elevator maintenance uh, record in this city is not going well. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of cases reported where people. Uh, have found that all the elevators in their buildings are not working, uh, especially in older buildings, TCHC buildings, these kinds of things. Yeah. And you think if you are uh, an older person who relies on a wheelchair or a mobility device and your elevators aren't working in your building, like you are, you can't go to work, you can't go 
got me and you can't do anything. Um, so that's one of those things where, you know, you look at is, are the regulations there that need to be there? Is the bylaw enforcement there that needs to be there? You know, is the city doing enough to, uh, track uh, deadbeat landlords, uh, you know, who are not doing the maintenance that they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Recently a problem when we're looking at, you know, uh, one of the things in the newsletter that I looked at was uh, the renters are living in older buildings, uh, you know, built in the 60s and well, 70s. Was that, yeah, you had, a, you had 93% of Toronto's rental units built before yeah. 1980. 1980, yeah. So, you know, Jeez. you're talking about buildings that are really getting up there in the uh, years, and that requires a, a lot of maintenance. And it's a question of, hey, where's that maintenance going to come, money going to come from? Mm-hmm. Um, are the landlords actually going to, to do it? Uh, and how do we track that? How do we make sure that it is happening, that these people who are generally uh, lower income people, and generally, in a lot of cases, older people, uh, you know, are they getting what they, they should be getting for their rent? Yeah. I mean, one just has to look, what is it? Is it uh, St. Jamestown? Yeah. Um, I don't know how many buildings there. Yeah. That people like have been, one every week. Yeah. yeah. That people have had to move out of. Because it's fires, fires or, or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, and yeah, those buildings are just it, thousands of families. seems to me that they're just sort of breaking down due to age and a lack of upkeep over the years. And, you know, my worry is that, okay, we're seeing a lot in St. Jamestown now. Like, what if that sort of, what is it, it exponential? You know, like, what if it starts spreading to other neighborhoods, other yeah. buildings as we move further and further away from the date people were constructed in the first place? Why you you cited also in, in, in that report that um, property builders stopped building uh-huh. rental units and at the exact same time the city stopped building affordable housing. Yeah. Do we know why um, these things happen? Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of theories around that, but it's ultimately you know developers will seek the most profit they can get. Hmm. So uh, during the 60s and 70s, the federal government particularly, but also the provincial government, offered a variety of tax incentives for rental construction, mm-hmm. and those were phased out or eliminated altogether. So when developers started doing the math, they realized that they could make more money building uh, condo un- buildings that were units were for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they started transitioning towards doing that. Governments had lots of opportunities over the years to get back into the, you know, offering these kinds of incentives for rental construction and, you know, making it happen. But, you know, there was also uh, some incentive for governments as far as, you know, getting development charges and this kind of thing to stick with the the condos, you know, like there was Mm -hmm. money on both sides in a lot of cases. So it just, it sort of just got away from everybody. You know, you looked at how did all this happen that we have to go back to the seventies to find rental construction on mass and it's just many decades of people not really understanding what was going on. Can you imagine the city giving up property taxes? Yeah. For paying out incentives. Yeah. Right. So it'd be like, oh, instead of taking money in, they're they're giving money out. For, yeah. For buildings. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that's there's been a little bit of that actually starting to happen this year with the housing now stuff that John Tory is doing, which is looking at it. Okay, the city owns a lot of land not really doing anything with yeah um you know are there ways that we can package this land sell it maybe for below cost with the provision that it has to be rental housing so we are starting to see that but it required a, a huge amount of effort by governments to even get to that point where they started thinking that way as opposed to the why not just let this be a condo get all the money that comes in from you know property taxes and development charges and all that and mm-hmm. call it a day what about so one of the things i noticed on your site was when it was in the newsletter was um the positioning around Toronto of some of those properties. Yeah. 
and not a lot in the core. Yep. Um, thoughts around the where they're sort of picking and choosing the properties they're looking at for Toronto now? Yeah, or? there definitely is. I mean, some of it was looking at, we have the Eglinton LRT opening mm -hmm. along Eglinton in 2021. So the idea was some of these properties are directly on that line or will be close to it. So the idea is, you know, let's find places with um, that kind of connectivity. But I, I also do think that part of it is, you know, some of the city owned sites in the downtown core, they would look at and see so many dollar signs from potential sale to a, a private company for condo buildings that, you know, it wouldn't make the list for, for this project. So that's always going to be a tension uh, because, you know, the city actually, you know, has an agency responsible for buying and selling land. And they are tasked with, you know, two things, a bunch of things, but two primary things. One would be, you know, make affordable housing happen. And the other would be generate some revenue for the city. Mm -hmm. And those things are not really simpatico. Like they are at odds with one another. So that's always going to be a thing that, that comes up when we start talking about this. I, I think we talked about that with John Sewell when, when he came in mm -hmm. to speak with us. And, and I mean, I think, I know for myself, and I think you're the same way. We were blown away when we found out how little of, uh, Region Park mm -hmm. was actually dedicated to like like yeah there are there's like I don't know it's like half or a quarter of the units that there used to be mm -hmm. in there to your point so the revenue that came in from the condos yeah no that was absolutely. just and like crazy. Region Park was an example of you know there would have been a time in the 60s and 70s when governments would have come together and invested in uh, public housing development like that talk about the things they learned along the way about how not to build public housing developments yeah. but yeah. there there was this idea that government spent on this kind of thing but when it came time to do the region park revitalization which uh you know is, is quite nice if you walk through it but you know part of it was they needed to figure out how to do this without the expectation that governments would come in with all kinds of funds so they needed to figure out how can we pay for this revitalization and the answer was you know we build a certain number of condos market rates and we sell yeah. those and we put some of the proceeds towards affordable housing in this area yeah but, uh, but even separated like one building is is, it, is that true one building yeah. is market rate rate and the other building is is yeah is affordable housing which which is crazy because again if you look at the st lawrence market model which happened to be under sewell yeah i mean the whole idea was everybody lived together like everybody sure ever, yeah. everybody work together yeah you don't know you, your, your neighbor together. could be in a subsidized unit you would never yeah. know um, yeah. and that's the, the st lawrence market uh neighborhood model is one of those uh, amazing toronto stories it's held up around the world it's held up it, around the yeah. world like toronto cracked the nut it was yeah. like how do we build a great neighborhood with affordable housing and it's like they did it they mm -hmm. did it and it worked and it's working to this day it's great to walk through and, yeah. and instead of just like repeating it in they multiple stopped. places across <laughs> the city and the gta they were like no that's enough we're done uh that's all we need but then again, it comes back to condos, right? Comes back to condos. Once you had once you had that mindset of Sewell and his gang, yeah, and then you had new leadership come in, and it was just about the dollars that came in with condos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always been of the opinion. I don't know if this is a question or not, but I've always been of the opinion that um, government needs to stop worrying about how much money it makes or how much money it saves, and needs to figure out how to make life livable. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you make Toronto? Um, Arguably the the magnet of the country, like this, like arts happens here, uh, business happens here, culture happens here. Um, you know, th this is the center. Yeah. Um, how do you ensure that um, life can thrive here? That that these industries, that these um, arts institutions, that these universities, that that culture can continue to thrive. Right. 
when you when it's not affordable anymore, when it's harder to get around town, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of these all of these different things. Yeah, I've always thought that Toronto budgets backwards because they sort of start with they say, okay, how much what should our tax rates be, and then based on that they calculate, okay, this isn't how much money we have to spend. Yeah, and then they try to cram as many services that they can into that envelope of spending. Whereas I think it would be fascinating to instead start on the other side and say, okay, like what are the service levels Torontonians would like to have? You know, like how often do we want transit to run? How many units of affordable housing do you want the city to add every single year? What kind of arts and culture programs do we want to have? Mm -hmm. All this stuff, you add all that up, you say, okay, that's going to cost X. And based on that costing X, your tax rate is going to be Y. And, you know, if that's an acceptable number, and then, you know, it costs what it costs. And you, you figure yeah. out from there, rather than this exercise of just trying to cram everything in and, you know, you, you never, they never get to the service levels they want to get to. Good stuff costs money. Good stuff costs money. Right? David Miller, the mayor, used to say, you can't have a great city for free. And no. It was a good slogan. You can't. I think he was the hockey stick guy, too, wasn't he? He had tape on his hockey stick, red tape or something. <laughs> was that Miller? Miller had a broom. He used to carry a broom. A broom. Was it a broom? Yeah, he used to carry I think it was a hockey stick. Yeah. <laughs> it was a broom. I was the least talk earlier. Was it? Yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> um, Greg, you want to take over from now because this is not TTC talk. TTC talk. This this is Greg. Greg has like a direct line to the TTC. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on ignore. You're, you're he's, on he's ignore. Building you up. Um, okay, Improbably. so so the the is it Scarpati up north? Yep. Markham. That, that that wants a subway to go there yep. and says, yeah, it doesn't matter about overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, I mean, I get on at, if I have to go downtown, I get on at York Mills. Right. That's what, three stops mm-hmm. later. And you got to let a subway go by. Yeah. Like three stops into the journey. Yeah. You can't get on a subway. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's one of those things that, I mean, this has been uh, emphasized by Doug Ford becoming the premier because Doug Ford is known to a lot of people as like the subway, subway, subways guy. Uh, but yeah, the mayor of Markham has really gotten all uh, excited about this idea of extending the young subway line north to Richmond Hill. And the challenge there is that, as you say, the young line is over capacity. It's not just at capacity. It's, it's over. almost way over capacity. So why, am I over reading, capacity. why am I reading that it's uh, up until 20, whatever, right. 2040 or what, I don't know right. what the numbers are, then it's over capacity. I'm like, how many more people can you squeeze? Yeah, the TTC yeah go to Young and Bloor yeah. at rush hour. That's scary. And tell me that's not overcapacity. Oh, yeah. The TTC is it. optimistic, and they're optimistic. They're optimistic about the idea that when they got the new subway trains that are all open, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. you can walk through the entire thing, that would increase capacity by a certain amount. You could fit more people on the trains. And it's theoretically true, but the challenge is the riders are not like perfect simulations. Like you still have, if you go on those, those trains, you know, people tend to crowd around the doors. They don't move course, sure. to the middle. So you don't get it. They didn't get as many people as they thought they would uh, to increase capacity. The new thing now is automatic train control. And that's what they're building. That's why the subway is closing down on weekends a lot. The idea there is instead of having somebody in the actual train who's, you know, stopping the thing, it's all computerized. So it's all run by computers. Ah. And the idea there is that when computers, the robots are doing it, they can run closer together because it's all computerized. Mm-hmm. So you'll be able to squeeze a few more trains onto the M line uh, every morning and every afternoon and increase mm. capacity that way. So that is the big hope right now is that, you know, we can make it a little longer than we would now as far as capacity goes by getting to automatic train control, letting the robots run the trains. They have all this 
that's the simulation showing that you know it will increase the number of people who will move through a station by x amount i'm still skeptical because again you still have this idea that the train has to pull in people have to sort of organize themselves and get through the doors they don't move as fast as you think they might there are people you know mobility devices and yeah. there is, is you know stuff that happens every day that causes delays here and there so i think the the estimates they have are optimistic which is why i am very very conservative about this you know like until the relief line is built i hate the idea of doing anything that would sort of just cause more people to get packed into those trains yeah. on a daily basis i mean if we started today if, if we started construction today right on the relief line, i don't even know what that looks like yeah um but how well, my long... neighborhood would be a mess yeah which is fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the price you pay for the price, no, no, I'm sorry. The price yeah. you pay for living close to the dead um, but what's, like, how long would that take? That would take, like, a decade? Yeah, we're looking 2029, probably, the most optimistic for the first phase of the relief line. So that would just be the section that runs from, like, Cape and Danforth down through downtown. Um, and realistically, you need, like, the second phase of the relief line, too. You need to go all the way up to, like, Shepherd and Don Mills, um, which would be further off. But yeah, first phase, yeah, 2029 is probably... The best you're going to do, and that's assuming somebody comes along to fund it. Let's do it now. Not the case right now. Yeah. Um. Is it Scarborough Subway? Yeah. Yes. No. Um. I'm always been a no on the Scarborough Subway. Yeah. Uh, just because there was a plan that already existed, the province had agreed to fund all of it, which was like the deal that the city had with the province for the Scarborough LRT. It was like they had gotten away with something. Like they should have never Run even with thought it. of because it was like the province is like we're going to pay for all of it we're going to pay for maintenance we're uh you know it's you can extend it like it was just a sweetheart deal the city had and the city decided because they liked the idea of a subway they would come back in and take on this billion you know three billion dollar project that they didn't have to worry about before so you know the upside of the scarborough subway is that when you take a transit now you have that awkward transfer where you go at the Kennedy Station from the subway to the Scarborough RT. It's up yeah. the flights of stairs. It's not a great transfer. Part of the plan with the LRT was to make that transfer better. Uh, but still, it would have been a transfer, and transfers are kind of annoying. Sure. But how much is that worth, like getting rid of that transfer? Like the, the city decided it was worth $3 billion, and I'm never going to think that was for one stop. For one stop. Yeah, yeah originally it was three stops, now it's one stop. And uh, we're still changing. They're still changing. Their stock is going back to three now. That I did a pool on Twitter where I asked a bunch of people who knew this, <laughs> you know, give me uh, two guesses. So, A, what do you think the final budget of the Scarborough subway will be, and what year do you think it will open? And I actually got a surprising number of people, and people who are like, you know, plugged in and follow the stuff, who said they didn't think it would ever open. They thought yeah. at some point, like, it's just going to become too expensive, too unwieldy, something's going to happen, and it'll just end up being uh, nothing. So, you'll be a grandfather before. <laughs> before the subway so Scarborough subway that's, that's, ap appears that's probably true probably before it even the hole is dug before, the before, the, before the hole is dug but, it, but when you look at the Scarborough subway like like how do we have a, a solution and the one stop obviously doesn't make sense but how do we have a solution that doesn't go all the way out to Highland Creek to the right. UT campus like I just yeah. I've always been well that whole the whole the whole borough of Scarborough city of Scarborough the, the whole area of Scarborough is very underserved yep yeah. Um, I mean, is this I, you crying now? That's me crying. Okay. But so I'm. I mean, oh, that's I'm entirely true. You I'm near Parkway Mall. I've been up by uh, by Malvern, yeah. by by the zoo, um, down by the bluffs. 
Um, and the service is horrendous. Like, literally, you've got to travel any... If you live up near Rouge Park, you you don't work downtown Toronto. And if you do, you're leaving at 5 in the morning or something yeah. like that. Right? It's ridiculous. And that was the rationale behind the LRT stuff for Scarborough in the first place, was recognizing that the vast majority of Scarborough commuters aren't actually headed downtown. They're headed to points within Scarborough. And you can't serve all of them by just building, you know, one subway stop or three subway stops. Let's actually lay out a plan where it's like, okay, we have this LRT line, this other LRT line going to Malvern. We have the Eglinton extension that goes out uh, that way as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just with those three lines, all of a sudden you've got, you know, a pretty robust LRT network serving Scarborough that also connects to the subway system for downtown commuters as well. And that's really important when you're talking about transits. It can't just be like a, a one shot. It's got to be, okay, what's the network we're building towards? And that includes LRT, includes buses. Uh, buses are obviously the backbone of the transit system. Like that's you, you got to have yeah. bus connectivity. So, uh, yeah, it's, so this idea that we can just serve Scarborough by building one stop at the Scarborough Town Center, which already has a rapid transit connection to it. I mean, the Scarborough RT has lots of problems, but sure. like, we're not actually creating a new transit destination with no. the Scarborough subway plan. It's still going to be a sort of subway connection at the mall. Like, that's all it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, TTC being uploaded yeah. to the problems. They've, they've started discussions, from yep. my understanding. Um, now, I, I didn't have a chance to, to read John Sewell's argument on why mm-hmm. he believes yeah. uh, they have a case on squashing that. Yeah. I was wondering if you can uh, dive a little bit. Yeah, this, that was the Sewell thing in both mail was fascinating because he basically argued that uh, the city could force the province, like the city could refuse to hand over the land to the subway stations, all of the land involved in the subway, uh, the tunnels, all that stuff. Because it's city-owned land. City-owned land and force the province to expropriate it. Basically, and the uh-huh. Expropriations Act uh, is apparently has a lot of teeth to it, and is not something the province can just sort of invalidate or overrule. Uh, so it would trigger, a, you know, a battle over expropriation. You'd be really looking at lots of there'd probably be lawsuits filed over this, and mm-hmm. I don't know how those would turn out. But Sewell was pretty confident that the city would actually have a pretty good case for saying, you know, this is our land, we own it, and we don't consent to having you come in and take it. So uh, you know, this is. An argument that's never been tried before, but uh, it would be very interesting to see what happens. Do you think Tory has? I don't know. Does, what would it take? Would it take guts? Would it just? Does he care? Is is there a? Yeah. Is there a willingness to say, you know what? Let the province deal with this, this headache. Is one of those things that you know Tory gets criticism for the most, I would say, is that Tory is the kind of politician who loves to make a deal, loves to come to a compromise, doesn't like to have enemies. Uh, really, he's just that kind of guy who is trying to, he's, you know, he says, okay, there's a bunch of people over here who want X, there's a bunch of people over here who want Y, what's the middle position? Like, how can we get everybody not 100% happy, but like 50% happy? Yeah. And, you know, in, in some ways that has served him well in politics. Like, that's something that politicians need to do more of. It's like, you can't be so dogmatic that you're unwilling to negotiate or compromise a little bit and say, mm. okay, this is... We're not going to get perfect here, but we're going to get something pretty good for an improvement. Uh, but in a case like this, where you have Doug Ford, who is not a compromiser, who is not somebody who is looking to make a deal, who is not looking to give on any one issue, uh, you have a situation where Tory is negotiating with somebody who doesn't want to negotiate. And yeah. the worry that people have is that Tory will just sort of end up giving everything <laughs> Doug Ford wants to Doug Ford. So uh, with the subway upload, that's, that's the concern that people have is, you know, 
it's just it's uncharted territory for John Tory um, to do this kind of thing. I'm wondering if it could be a good thing. Yeah. Like I'm wondering if the province takes over mm-hmm. and Ford says, now go the heck and start digging, start building now. Yeah. Like I'm wondering if that could actually be a good thing. That's, to that's get... the argument on the other side. Exactly. On the other side, but that's that's one yeah. side of the argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like it's like we talked about with the um, municipal election and the, the consolidation of, of our council. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like maybe it's a good thing. Not a lot of people said maybe it's a good thing. Yeah. But not weeks before the election. Yeah. So Fair. Like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. could this be No, I, absolutely. I mean if there was an NDP government or a liberal government at Queen's Park and they were saying to the city, hey we want to get more of Melbourne transit, we want to upload some of these pieces, we want to be more involved in the funding of operations and maintenance, like everybody would be dancing at City Hall. I think so. They'd be like, this is we great. Right. Yeah, super excited. The challenge people have is that if the provincial government was serious about doing this, they'd have to be serious. Like, There's no way they could do it that would save them money. So you have a provincial government right now that's very focused on reducing their deficit, on paying down their debt, but they're also saying we want to take on the front of the subway system. Ah, uh, so the fear of they're just going to yeah. let it rot. Well, yeah, how does that line up? Like, mm. You can't really privatize do both it. those things. They could privatize, but even then, like, subway, like, transit is not a great private sector bet. I'm not saying yeah. it's right yeah. to do. Just, but mm-hmm. they could try doing some of that. Um, but ultimately it is, you know, and then there's the question, the motive question, right? Like, why does Doug Ford actually want to do this? And if you look at, you know, what he said before about wanting to extend the Shepherd subway line, about wanting to do like a subway line to Sherway Gardens, um, you know, being supportive of the Markham subway, the subway to Richmond Hill. Uh, there's this idea that this is less about sort of improving things for riders and more just about getting Toronto Council out of the way so that some of these extensions they want can just to be approved and done. I don't know that it will lead to things getting done faster. Like the idea that you can just send out like some people start digging, <laughs> like give some dudes a shovel and be like, all right, go start digging. Uh, like ultimately, it's like the York U line that happened so fast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a ton of engineering work. You're talking about boring machines that need to be bought and located yeah. and put on the ground. So you know, there's there's no quick way to get to a subway. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's one of those things that's kind of fascinating because it's not a bad idea in isolation. It's just when you factor in. You know, who the premier is and some of his priors that you start to worry about you know what exactly is the province trying to do here do you look at do you look at the long game rather than his shelf life yeah i think like that's the thing like if you are confident that doug ford's only going to be in office for three more years uh you know, who else is going to run against yeah. him there's no one they don't have any leaders yet who's there there's no one there's no liberal leader um i don't know who that's going to be Andrew no is for the ndp and no yeah there's really no one seriously there's no one. Well, presumably somebody will run again. Well, there's three more years, so there yeah. could be some. Yeah, there could Somebody's, be some. Yeah, so something will happen. But yeah, that that w- there would be the thought that you know, can we change the arrangement so that the province is more involved in Toronto Transit, and would that over the next 10, 20 years actually be a net benefit for mm-hmm. riders? Could be. Uh, but I I honestly think like that the province is going to look at this deal more closely and think, you know, every way we look at this, it involves us taking on billions of dollars in debt and you know, maintenance costs and whatever else, and maybe we just don't want to do that right now. Yeah. Like, I would not be surprised if they just, they, they back off. It's nuts. Um, another thing that wants to be up, that uh, Doug Ford wants to upload, or maybe he doesn't, I don't know. I haven't read your report that came out, like, a couple of hours before we started recording, but the gardener. Yeah. So, to, to like, what's happening with that? Is, that? is that a discussion that's going on? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not... 
like the a few years ago, council had the choice between and it's just about the section of the Gardener East, so between Jarvis Street and Don Valley Parkway. So mm-hmm. it's about a two-ish kilometer section of highway. Um, it's the least used section uh, of the highway network in Toronto. Uh, so council had to decide whether to look at removing that whole thing or keeping it at a cost of uh, you know the time it was just under a billion dollars and it's grown uh, ever since. They decided to keep it, um, so that decision has been made, and I think it's at a point now where it's probably too late to go back on it anyway. Mm. But one of the things the council is grappling with now is they're looking at their budget for 2019, and they have what's called a state of good repair budget, which sort of says, okay, like how much are we spending to maintain stuff for the next 10 years? And the way it's laid out right now is they're plowing about $2 billion into the Gardner Expressway as the repair backlog for basically everything else. Can you imagine there's a backlog on? How do you have a backlog? Yeah. On a highway like that. I mean, look at the what yeah. it takes to keep that infrastructure. It's place. an and elevated falling highway. apart. I mean, but to have a backlog like that's it's it's built on like shoreline that did not previously exist when it was yep. built. Like it's all artificial shoreline. It was it's the kind of engineering thing that you would never do now. Like it was very much a product of its time. Like I'm surprised I don't get scared driving on that thing. Yeah. No, I do. Not like, when I'm up, not when I'm on top of it. Walking underneath it or driving underneath yeah, it, yeah, hell yeah. With rock, they've had stuff falling off that thing yeah. for years. It's gotten better since they started doing some of the maintenance on it, but yeah. it's in really rough shape and it's eating a huge chunk of the city budget right now. Yeah. So it's causing um, some people to, to question that. Uh, you know, if you're talking about building a modern city, how much should you spend on a Lakeside Expressway? And then there's the question of which I wrote about today, like the province is talking about uploading the subway system but really if they want to upload something like why not the gardener you know the province is in the business of building and maintaining highways they have the entire 400 series of highways uh doug ford is a big personal fan of the gardener he likes to drive on it to get to work um and it's something that you know the city if the city could get that off its books and focus instead on you know housing and other transit stuff like that would open up a whole lot Mm. of opportunity to get stuff fixed so I make the case in the newsletter today that that's something they should consider. Uh, I think it's unlikely to actually happen, but I, it's a thing where if I was in John Tory's shoes, I would consider negotiating a little harder with it, you know? Like, if you want the subway, take this too. <laughs> nice. Um, you also discussed Sidewalk Labs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'll admit, when I first heard about it, I go, freaking awesome. Here's smart people at Google. Mm-hmm. They're going to come and take a couple of blocks, and they're going to figure out how to build a smart city. I was gung-ho. And then you just, like, it, it's been, I don't know, it's, it's sort of been nonstop negative watch out yeah. news come, come, coming out of it. Yeah. Um, what do we know and what do we don't, what don't we know? Um, I think the challenge has been that Sidewalk Labs, which is basically Google, uh, city yeah. development company, uh, came in, there was a big splashy introduction, the prime minister was there, uh, you know, on the waterfront talking about how great this is going to be, Google was coming in to show us how to build a city of the future and all that stuff. Um, but eventually, as people looked into it, it became clear that they really didn't have any clear plan yet. They had made the announcement prior to figuring out a lot of stuff. And I think that has been the, the one of the biggest mistakes they, they made so far is that they just didn't have answers for people. So people were coming in and saying, okay, you made this announcement. You keep saying smart city, but we don't really know what that means. Yeah. Uh, you are Google, and Google makes the, you know, the biggest chunk of Google revenue is through advertising, mm-hmm. uh, which involves capturing a lot of data. So how does that factor into what you're talking about doing down here? 
uh, you know, it was a bunch of questions and they just didn't know. There was no answers, right? They didn't have answers. And so, you know, one of the things that I think was, you know, a a mistake in retrospect is they should have taken the time instead of, you know, doing the big flashy announcements with Trudeau and everything, just, you know, get some ducks in in a row first. Yeah, do your due diligence. Do your due diligence. Do some consultation. So instead of saying, here's what we're doing, you're talking to people and saying, hey, what do you think should happen here on the waterfront? Um, and it's gotten, they've gotten a little bit better in some ways, but in other ways, uh, they haven't. And last week when it came out that not only do they have plans for this quayside section of the waterfront, but they also are looking at the Portland, which is a much bigger part of Toronto's waterfront, uh, that I think caused people to say like, hold on, you haven't built anything yet. Like yeah. what you're getting ahead of yourselves here. And then also, you know, they, uh, have this proposed sort of funding strategy that involves, you know, them fronting some of the money to build this stuff and the city would pay them back in tax revenue and property taxes and development charges. And they would get a cut of the land sales. Like there's some business stuff in there, which feels again, like it's coming out of, of nowhere. People are saying like, where was this the last two years? Like, yeah. you know, instead of just being transparent and developing a plan with the city, it feels too much. I think like it's all coming from the top down. There's also the factor, like, you know, if you start, I wrote this in the newsletter today, but if you think, uh, okay, the uh, tech giant is going to build a waterfront in the city, like, that does feel a little bit Black Mirror, I think, for some people. Like, Yeah, like, if you sit down and think about it, like, yeah. why would a private company just give away stuff to a first world city? Yeah, they're not going to, and, like, the answer is they're not going to give it away. They have no. a plan where they, this sidewalk labs is going to generate billions of dollars. Google doesn't really do anything about the idea that at some point it's going to sure. make billions of dollars. And that's fine, but again, be upfront about it. Like, I yeah. think instead of being like, we're doing all this stuff for because we love cities, just be like, we love, it's a business. We want to make money. Here's, <laughs> here's what we're offering you and take it or take leave it. Take it or leave it. What, what blew my mind, and I think you tweeted it yesterday or the day before, I showed my wife, where it was like the, the area that they're talking about in the Portlands is basically the size from... Bathurst to Parliament, Dundas to the lake, or something, or yep. Jarvis, something Basically, like that. Bathurst like, to Jarvis, that's yeah, a Dundas massive. Yeah. It's just it's massive. the size. The Portland's is about the size downtown, of that downtown of city core. So when you think about how much money is made off all these buildings yeah. around here, if you could replicate that, like how much is that worth? Yeah. Like it's billions and billions of dollars. And we only get one shot at it too, right? Like there's not a lot of undeveloped waterfront land left in the city, so you want to make sure that you're going with your eyes open and know what you're getting before you sign on to anything. Yeah, Matt, uh, Greg, and I can talk about the city that we love to hate, like for hours. Um, I don't hate it. You hate it. I well, sure. <laughs> well, you, you love it. I hate it. I hate the TTC. That's why you're in a team. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but Matt, you've got you've got a great newsletter. I think a lot of people should subscribe to it. Why don't you tell us like, how can we get more information? Uh, if you go to cityhallwatcher.com, you can sign up for the newsletter. It'll redirect you to the sign up page. Um, it costs five dollars a month to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you can get yourself on the, a list for uh, free. I'll do the occasional free newsletter as well. But if you want to get it every Monday, you, you give me five bucks a month, and I think you get something worth uh, worth that uh, every week. Um, and also, if you are a student or somebody who's aspiring to cover City Hall, I offer subscriptions for free for no cost. There's a form you can fill out to, to request one of those as well. So uh, don't be shy if that's something you want to get into. Uh, I love to support people getting into City Hall and starting to, to write about it and cover about it. Yeah, well, listen, that's if, awesome. we, if I'm, I, 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 I pay for a few pieces of, of news, um, and I think if you want good quality, you got to pay for it. Like, you got to pay for it somehow. Um, so definitely, for those of you who are listening, uh, subscribe to Matt Elliott's uh, newsletter, uh, especially if you're really, really interested in some of the stuff going on 
down at Toronto's City Hall. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. It's great to be here. Thanks.